the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Thessalonians. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. They were living with that expectancy in their own day as much as we should now. And how many of you understand, do a little bit of the math, right? I mean, this is first century. Jesus didn't return. We're closer to a second coming right now than, we, than they were then. And yet they lived in a spirit of expectancy for the second coming of Christ. How much more should we live in a spirit of expectancy? But because they were so expectant of his imminent return, they checked out. They decided we don't need to go to work anymore. We don't need a job because he's coming again. With all of the craziness in the world these days, many believers can be found saying, come quickly, in regards to Christ's second coming. But what should we be doing as we wait? Pastor Gary gives us a few helpful hints from the church in ancient Thessalonica, which had a great deal of faithful expectation, but fell short in their day-to-day employment of faith. It's important we learn from their mistakes, or we are bound to find ourselves repeating them. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. All right, so we're heading now through the Bible from left to right, but as you go from Colossians, which is what we finished last week, to 1 Thessalonians, even though you're going chronologically in your Bible from left to right, you're not going chronologically in time, because we're actually going backwards from Colossians to 1 Thessalonians about 10 years. Colossians was written around 62 AD. 1 Thessalonians was written around 51, 52, 53 AD. And so we're actually going backwards in time. So your Bible is not necessarily arranged in chronological order. 1 Thessalonians was one of the earliest of Paul's letters that he wrote just after Galatians, which was the first letter that Paul wrote, and then 1 Thessalonians. So what I'd like to do first, as I often do whenever we start a new book, is just to kind of give you a little bit of the background, get a little bit of a, the historic reference, and then we'll, we'll read 1 Thessalonians. We're also going to look in the book of Acts to see the story leading up to this letter. But in the meantime, those of you who like to take notes about all of this information, first, some information about the city of Thessalonica. It is located in modern Greece. It is a port city along the Macedonian Gulf, along the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. The population of Thessalonica in Paul's day in the first century was around 200,000 plus, which is considered a very large city in that day. 
and it was originally named Therma. The city was called Therma because of the hot springs that were found there. It would be renamed after Alexander the Great's half-sister in 315 BC. Her name was Thessalonike, and so the city took on her name after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Today, however, the city is called sometimes Thessaloniki, but most often uh, it is called Salonika, with a population of more than 300,000. Even though this was a city at one time with a large Jewish population, uh, in 1941, uh, the Germans took over Greece uh, during World War II, and in particular, this city of uh, Salonika or Thessalonica. And as a result, the persecution of the Jews under Hitler's Nazi regime resulted in, first, the Jews being uh, sequestered to a ghetto side of the, of the rails in Thessalonica, and then subsequent to that, in 1943, they were rounded up and taken to concentration camps. As many as 54,000 Jews were taken from this city in 1943, which represented 90% of the Jewish population. Today, in the city of Salonika, there are only roughly 1,200 Jews. But at one time, there were well over 60,000. But again, World War II took its devastating toll on Jews around the world, and in particular here in Salonika. So that's the background of the city itself. Now a little bit about the church at Thessalonica, because this is a letter written to the church of this city. The church of Thessalonica was founded by Paul around 51, 52 AD, after only a three-week visit during his second missionary journey, which is a very remarkable thing when you think about it, because you know to get a church going... And our church was a church plant 26 years ago. I can tell you, to get a church going off the ground usually takes more than three weeks. This is just a testimony of God's grace in, in establishing this church under Paul's leadership. And then after three weeks, the thing just excelled. Uh, and it was a mix of mostly Gentile believers, those who came to faith in Christ who were Gentiles, and also Jews who came to faith in Christ, but it was mostly made up of Gentile believers and some Jewish believers. We'll see that in a moment when we look back at the reference point in Acts chapter 17. This first letter to the Thessalonians, because you'll notice in your Bibles that after 1 Thessalonians follows 2 Thessalonians, another letter that Paul writes to this church, but the first letter to the Thessalonians was written by Paul while he was in Corinth around the year 52-53 AD, which is about one year after he had founded the church. And the main theme of this letter, get excited, friends, because the main theme of this letter is the second coming of Christ. This is a great book having to do with the return of Jesus. Now, I never want to assume that everybody understands some of the basics or fundamentals of the faith. So for those of you who don't know, uh, when Jesus Christ was crucified... He, he was dead and buried for three days. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And then the Bible says that he appeared for 40 days in his resurrected state. And then he ascended back into heaven from which he came, where he is presently seated at the right hand of the Father. This is what the Bible teaches. And the Bible also teaches that Jesus is coming again. He's coming back to earth. We don't know when, but God has it as an appointed time when Jesus will return to the earth. And he is waiting. 
He is waiting for as many people as possible to become saved. But then the Lord is going to return again to the earth. Now there are uh, about 300 plus, give or take, prophecies about the first coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. Things related to when he would come to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, a descendant of the tribe of Judah, a Nazarene. And so many prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Jesus. But in the sum total of Scripture, Old and New Testament, there are three times as many prophecies related to his second coming as related to his first. So there are more than a thousand prophecies that speak about the second coming of Christ. How many of you understand that's pretty good evidence because if Jesus fulfilled all 300 plus prophecies, all of them came true related to his first coming, and now there are more than a thousand prophecies related to a second coming, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And because we don't know, we should always be ready for his imminent return. Now, even though there are three times as many prophecies in the Bible related to the second coming of Christ as compared to his first coming, There is not yet a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before he comes to remove the church from the earth. In other words, there are prophecies still to be fulfilled. But ever since Israel became a unified nation again, on May the 14th, 1948, there is no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled in order for Christ to come back for us. So that means we should be looking and waiting and watching. Now, it's not a fearful thing. You know, we shouldn't be afraid. We should be looking forward to our ultimate, you know, redemption when Christ returns. But it should put within us a strong sense of how we should live in light of the fact that he could come at any time. That really has a lot to do with this letter to the Thessalonians here, the first first Thessalonians, because Paul's going to write to them, and he's going to say, listen, I want you to know about the second coming of Christ. He's going to come again, and I want you to be prepared, and I want you to be ready. I want you to be watching. I want you to know that it's imminent. Now, what actually happened is that the Thessalonians were so encouraged by that news that they checked out. I mean, they literally decided, well, if Jesus is coming again, even though we don't know when, it could be at any time, and they believed they were living with that expectancy in their own day as much as we should now, and how many of you understand, do a little bit of the math, right? I mean, this is first century, Jesus didn't return. We're closer to a second coming, right, now than than they were then, and yet they lived in a spirit of expectancy for the second coming of Christ. How much more should we live in a spirit of expectancy? But because they were so expectant of his imminent return, they checked out. They decided, we don't need to go to work anymore. We don't need a job, because he's coming again. And so they just checked out. They just sat at home eating Twinkies, and they just like, but Jesus is coming any time. So we don't, we don't need to worry about anything. And in 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians, which we'll get to, you know, in, in a few months probably, but in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, hey, listen, wake up. You still need to work. Go get a job. And he actually says in 2 Thessalonians, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. So he says, don't check out. You need to still live with the understanding that Christ could return at any moment, but you don't check out of life. 
You engage your culture, you live like you normally would live, but you just always have in mind that he could come at any time, and so therefore it should prompt us and motivate us to live a life of holiness in devotion to the Lord because we want to be ready whenever that might be. So that that has to do with a lot of what's behind uh, this first letter to the Thessalonians. And you'll see also in 2 Thessalonians too. In 2 Thessalonians, he's going to talk about the Antichrist. So there's a lot between these two letters here having to do with when Christ comes in the cloud to receive the church, and uh, which we call the rapture. That's in chapter 4 of this, of this letter. He's also going to talk uh, about uh, what we need to do in preparation for second coming. And then Second Thessalonians, he talks about the, the man of lawlessness, the one doomed to destruction. He talks about the Antichrist and, and, and the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. So there's a lot here in First and Second Thessalonians. What I love about this letter is that when you, when you look at the three main points that he tries to make here, it's divided very neatly like this. Trials will come, that's chapters one through three. Temptations will come, that's chapter four. And Jesus will come, that's chapters four and five. So he's going to talk about how, how there's going to be some trials in life. That's the first few chapters. And we're going to be tempted in different ways. Our sin nature is going to be tempted. And he says, but I just want you to know that in addition to trials coming and temptations coming, Jesus is coming. And, and in, you know, he, he concentrates on the return of Christ in chapters 4 and 5. But I just want to point out, if you'll survey your Bibles with me, he ends every chapter. He ends every single chapter here in First Thessalonians with some reference to the return of Christ. Look at how chapter 1 ends. Just glance with me in your Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 10, for example. He says, and to wait... For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Because he's going to talk about the tribulation a little bit too. Look at how chapter 2 ends. Go to chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Look at the way chapter 3 ends. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And that's not angels. That's a reference to the saints who return with Christ. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 3. Look at how chapter 4 ends. Chapter 4, verse 16 For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And then look at at the way chapter 5 ends, verse Uh, 23, 523, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of the church is our reunion with Christ and that he's coming again. And so Paul has much to say here in 1 Thessalonians. Now, Again, at the risk of kind of belaboring the introduction, 
I do think it's important for us to always get the context of something. So if you'll maybe put a pen or pencil or a piece of paper there in First Thessalonians and go backwards, hang a left and go to the book of Acts. Because I want you to see how this church even was birthed. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 17. We're not going to spend too much time here in Acts 17, but I just wanted to, to give you a little bit of the context here. So in Acts chapter 17... This is Paul's second missionary journey. We're in the middle of his second missionary journey, which starts uh, right around the end of chapter 15. And, And Timothy and Paul and Silas are now traveling together. Paul, at the end of chapter 15, Paul has a little disagreement with Barnabas. Uh, over over uh, Barnabas's uh, nephew or cousin, depending on the translation, John Mark. So Paul and Barnabas have a, have a sharp disagreement. They decide to part company. Paul then chooses another traveling companion by the name of Silas, and also Timothy joins him. And so we're in the middle of the second missionary journey. He's going throughout uh, Asia Minor, which is you know a lot of Europe, primarily the region of Turkey and Greece. And here in chapter 17, we read this, verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So that's, what, that's the city we're talking about here, where there was a Jewish synagogue. All right, pause. You would not have a Jewish synagogue in a city or a town unless there was the presence of at least 10 Jewish men. So we know here in Thessalonica that there was a Jewish presence because there is a synagogue here. And verse 2 says, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ, that just means the Messiah, that's Jesus, had to suffer and rise from the dead. Okay, so Paul's primary mission really was to the Gentiles, but he went to the Jew first, And, and he was a Jew. So we went first to the Jews to explain from their own Jewish scriptures how Christ is revealed and who Christ is and how Jesus is the Savior of the world who rose from the dead. And so he starts in a synagogue, and it tells us here that he spends three Sabbath days. That's how we know that he spent three weeks with them, because he goes in and teaches in the synagogue, reasoning with them. It's, it's the Greek word dialogomei, which is, we get our English word dialogue. He dialogues with them. He teaches them. He reasons with them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. Our, what we have is our Old Testament. And, and he explains to them and proves from the scriptures, from all these 300 plus prophecies about Christ related to his first coming, proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. So, so Paul is this master apologist and he's using Jewish scriptures to reason in a Jewish synagogue with the Jewish people about the truth of the Messiah, Jesus. And, he's, and he says to them, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded. Okay, not all. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So that's how we know one of the bullet points earlier was that this church was initially made up of a few, some Jews who believed, but it says a large number of Greeks, those are the Gentiles, come to faith in Christ. So it's predominantly a Gentile church, but it also does have some Jewish believers as well. Verse five, but the Jews were jealous. Now this speaks about the Jews who didn't believe. 
So you have a whole group of Jews who didn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah as a result of Paul's preaching. They become jealous, they become angry, and it says, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. It's like, if you don't know what to do, just get a mob, you know, and start a riot in the city, and they rushed to this guy named Jason, to Jason's house, because that apparently is where Paul and, and Silas and Timothy were staying. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, listen, listen. Notice what's happening here. Now, this is the day when only Caesar's king and only Caesar's lord, okay? Augustus, Augustus, Augustus for Caesar means the divine one. At this time in Roman history, the Caesars were regarded as deity. You know, it's interesting, though, when you look at how the real truth survives, you know, who is the one we exalt now? It's the Lord Jesus. I mean, whatever happened to the Caesars? What's their claim to fame? A salad. (laughs) That's it. And a really mad monkey on the planet of the apes. But other than that, there's no claim to fame. The Caesars are gone, even though they were in a position of deifying themselves, Augustus. So in this day, you can only only glorify Caesar. He's Lord. He's king. What is so tragic here is that the Jews, who didn't believe in Jesus were so offended by that, that they use their own culture as a weapon against the message of the gospel. So we don't like this whole thing about Jesus. Isn't Caesar supposed to be our king? No, God is always the king. But it's convenient for them to even use, out of expediency, their own culture as a way to try to discredit and defame the message of the gospel. So that's, they start this riot and, and, and they're saying all these things about, you know, look, these guys are here against Caesar and, and, and this one called Jesus. Verse eight, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil and then they made Jason and the others post bond and let him go. And in verse 10, it says, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So apparently they had hidden Paul and Silas somewhere and they can't find him. So they hauled Jason, you know, out and they beat him up. And, and, then, and then they go back to wherever Paul and Silas is like, you need to get out of town. Your life is in danger. Your life is in jeopardy here. And so they go off to Berea. And uh, which is about 50 miles away from Thessalonica, jump down to verse 13 And when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So that's your introduction to the church at Thessalonica. And the reason I think it's important to frame the context is, again, for two reasons. One... Paul only spent three Sabbath days there. So three Saturdays in a row, Paul goes to the synagogue, talks about Jesus. At the end of three weeks, you have a small group of Jews and a large number of Greek Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. And after three weeks, this riot ensues. Paul has to get out of Dodge or else he's going to die, okay? And he then makes his way to Berea and then to Athens. And these 
These Jewish people who didn't believe in Christ stir up trouble. You'd think that it would be enough for, okay, finally, Paul left town. Good riddance. You'd think that they might think that. No. They're going to go 50 miles to the next town where Paul goes to stir up trouble there too. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as Pastor Gary Hamrick teaches through the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you're interested in hearing this message again or others like it, feel free to visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. This is a great way to keep up with Pastor Gary's studies and to have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once there, simply look under the Teachings tab. You can also learn more about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be excited to meet you if you're in the area. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We trust you've been encouraged by today's teaching from the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we encourage you to read over today's message on your own. And then make plans to join Pastor Gary again for more from this New Testament letter right here on Cornerstone Connection. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.